It's a joy to worship with you this morning. I always enjoy hearing the saints sing out as we worship together. So just grateful for y'all and grateful to be here with you. You know, um, have you ever seen one of those images that is meant to trick your eye? Right. Certainly, you've probably seen the ones where lines seem to come together as they run across the page, or maybe the picture of the, the bark of the tree, but there's a snake there and you can't see it. Uh, there's, there's another one where there's a, a line drawing, and it, depending on how you look at it, it's either an old woman or a young woman. And uh, your, your mind kind of latches on to one picture or the other. Depending on you know, what your brain is expecting to see. And that can fill in the holes for you, right? So there may be something that uh, is not definitely one thing or the other in the picture right away, but your brain latches on to one of the two options. And brain teasers are one thing, but an understanding of facts is another. Someone makes a statement and then somebody else replies with, well, what about this? And the problem is their what about is often not addressing the point that the other side is trying to make. And instead, you know, the two sides are talking past one another, right? They're assuming the worst of each other. They're not actually talking to one another at all, right? They're talking in a way that's just against one another. And so each side is ultimately just rallying their troops for their side in this argument. And they're taking a predefined talking points in order to defend their position. And that further alienates the other side. So the other side moves away and doesn't trust them, right? They don't trust them as somebody who's really willing to discuss this issue with them. Now, today's passage shows us this kind of interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus. It's, you know, this kind of interaction has been around for a long time. People will overlook key points and then lob inaccurate attacks. And they ignore all the dots that are right in front of them and they fill in the hole with what they expect to see. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul that the, the prince of demons that this man cast out demons. So knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven this people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, what have we seen here? Right, first, God does this amazing work among the people. Right? Christ frees and he heals this person who was demon-oppressed. And second, the, the Pharisees see this and they reply by reframing the issue from their perspective. They're asserting that Christ is aligned with Satan and only bad can come from him. So they claim that he works by the power of Satan. So Jesus responds, not with a what about, but instead by revealing how nonsensical their assertion is. And he uses this illustration of a house divided. Right? He then highlights this division and saying that there's no middle ground. You're either for him or against him. And then he follows this up with this unforgivable sin to deny the work of the Holy Spirit who works by the power of God. So let's look at each one of these in turn. Right? The, the amazing work of God, the conflicting testimonies between the two sides, a house divided, the fact that there's no middle ground, and then the unforgivable sin. So going back to verses 22 and 23, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So we've seen this kind of situation several times in Matthew. Someone is sick or demon oppressed. And the person's brought to Jesus and Jesus heals. And then the people are amazed and it raises this question, who is Jesus? And their responses, the response here is, could this be the son of David? The account does not say anything about who brought the man. He was blind and mute and demon-possessed, so somebody probably brought him. But who brought him is not the key piece of information we need to understand here. The account does not say how Jesus healed him. Whether he spoke a word or laid hands on him, and that too is not important. In this healing event, what was important? Let's look at what it does say. Jesus was the one doing the work. The man was, in fact, healed, and the people were amazed. This account focuses on Jesus, just as we've seen throughout Matthew up until now. It's pointing out how Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who heals. He has the power and authority to do so. And so the people respond in amazement with this question, can this be the son of David? And we saw this same pattern in other accounts where the focus was on Jesus and the whole thing points to who Jesus is. Right? He's the son of David, the Messiah. This account mirrors what we saw just a few chapters back. 
right? It reminds us of those ideas we covered, I think, back, you know, 9, 10, and 11. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. Worship him. But remember, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. And so he conquered through a different means than what they anticipated. And when we understand that, it provides more context to that question. Can this be the son of David? They may not have been completely sure. The crowds were trying to understand. He's not exactly what they thought he would be. Yet he does these amazing things. And so people were willing to entertain this question. Can this be the son of David? So let's consider the amazing work of God here, right? People saw it and were amazed and were willing to consider whether he is the son of David. And Matthew's gospel records this announcing of the coming kingdom of God and demonstration and power. And we should not lose that amazement as we read this today. Right? These things were recorded in Matthew to help us to see who Jesus is. He is the one who comes with compassion. The one who comes to heal. The one who comes to bring the Messianic kingdom, which promises the undoing of the curse of sin and the restoration of the world. And he brings good news. And so these miracles, they they don't happen every day. And they didn't happen every day even in the ancient world. They were a marker of something new that had come. And in this account, a demon is mentioned, but it's not even the central point, right? Christ is. And as we continue reading, we see the context for that accusation because the, or for bringing up the demon, because the Pharisees use it as the basis of their accusation against Jesus, right? In the very next verse, in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons, so now we have these conflicting testimonies between the people and between the Pharisees. Right back in Matthew 10, we saw that example of the blind men who had eyes to see spiritual truth, even when the Pharisees who could see physically couldn't see the spiritual truth that was in front of them. They were spiritually blind. And here again, we see the crowds who entertain this possibility that Jesus is the son of David and the Pharisees who are incensed by that notion. And they worked to cut it off swiftly. So the Pharisees were critics. They were scoffers. So where's the crowd? Raised the question. The Pharisees said, no way. So this is actually the second time we've seen this sort of interaction in chapter 12. So let's look at the pattern that we're seeing here. I think we see two cycles of this pattern throughout chapter 12, right? In the first part of the chapter, Jesus says his yoke is easy, right? And Jesus then heals on the Sabbath and the Pharisees attack him for it. And then Jesus responded that it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus showed tenderness and compassion. His yoke is easy. He healed and they responded with scoffing. And now in this section, right, what we covered last week was he will not break a bruised reed, Again, showing his compassion. And then, this week, we see that he heals the demon-possessed man. And they accuse him of healing by the work of Satan. So we have now seen this pattern twice. In both cases, Jesus comes with compassion. 
an easy yoke or kindness towards the bruised reed. Jesus then heals or casts out a demon. And this provokes the Pharisees who then accuse him. And then he pushes back on them for their misguided attacks. We've seen this twice now. There's a huge contrast between Jesus who comes to show compassion and to heal and how the Pharisees characterize him as working in the power of Satan. Right? This is written for us. Right? As we read, let us understand what it's trying to say to us. Right? The people are asking whether he is the son of David and that makes a lot more sense. So where do the Pharisees get this idea from? Accusing him to be working by the power of Satan. Criticism of this sort that we see in this passage is driven by a collision of worldviews. Their assumptions drive their conclusions here. They were against Jesus' whole program. Everything that he stood for. And the lines are already drawn between the two sides. and They're looking for arguments to bolster their side And the reference to Satan is just a talking point. It becomes a tribal game. And in the mind, it zeroes in on the worst possible conclusions. And so for the Pharisees, Jesus could not be the Messiah. That would be outrageous. The, The Messiah would not look like this. It wouldn't work the way Jesus does. How then can they explain that? They argue that he's working for Satan. And their understanding was clouded, and as a result, they make these false assertions. They fill in the blanks with the worst possible interpretation. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about biting criticism. Right? Proverbs 16, 27 through 28, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, cruel words are thrown around lightly, not caring where they land. But this was not a backhanded snub. It was a full-on attack, even if it was baseless. Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's just what the Pharisees did here. They called good evil. They were so taken up with their cause that they were willing to mix up darkness and light. Think of how big an error that is. We feel justified in pursuing justice, but what if the justice we pursue is clouded by falsehoods? Blinded by our own ambitions. And we get the cart before the horse and work to maintain conclusions and justify them, and we, we mix up the two. And notice how the testimony of the people is set against the testimony of the Pharisees. The people see that something amazing is happening here, but the Pharisees will have none of it. So what was driving the Pharisees? Was it a genuine pursuit for truth? Was it a desire to do the right thing? They may have wanted to do the right thing, but they short-circuited the process. 
I would propose that they were so driven by their ideology that they could not see the truth when it was right in front of them. When it was placed right before them, had come straight to their town, their place where they were, and demonstrated with power before them. This raises a big question. They consider themselves to be honorable followers of God, but in reality they made themselves blasphemers. When you put away character, when you sacrifice for the cause, who do you become? You exchange light for darkness, you exchange truth for the lie. And to prove the point, Jesus responds with this illustration about a house divided. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So Jesus casts out a demon, and they reply that he works by the power of Beelzebul. But Jesus knew their thoughts. That was more than a situational awareness or just intuition. He actually knew their thoughts. He understood their motivations and their hostility their unwillingness to, to listen or to understand. He understood where they were going to come next at him. But notice what he does. Rather than push back directly, he brings up this illustration for them right, to show that their assertion makes no sense. The debate is over the status of God's kingdom and who Jesus is. And Jesus uses this kingdom illustration to make his point. The Messianic kingdom is being contrasted with the kingdom of Satan. And if demons are set against Satan, his kingdom cannot stand. But there's a broader implication of what Jesus is saying. His kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, is truly set against Satan and will conquer Satan. Just as he said... Right. If, I, if the Spirit of God is by the way that he casts out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right. That's, that's the whole plan of what Matthew's been laying out. Right. What Jesus brings is the kingdom of God. So we see these three different images here. Right. A, a city, a kingdom, and a house. Jesus points out that division into factions, it's fatal to a kingdom. It's disastrous to the city. It's destructive to the house. So in any organization, at any level, if there is strife and division, it will not stand. First, it's hard to get anything done. You won't be able to advance the cause if those on your team are constantly working against you. 
right? And second, the team is torn, right? If there's factions working against one another, the team's not even going to make it to the end. They'll tear each other apart. They'll scatter where you gathered. Right? So last, right, in this household where there is division, there will be much strife and it will bring about scattering, right? The bitter rivalries and just trust will scatter the work. So this, of course, is the reference that Abraham Lincoln used uh, in the, before the Civil War with respect to the U.S. government, right? A common intent and willingness to work together is needed to govern. Right? If there's divisions that are too, um, too deep, then a, there's, there will be a lack of collegiality needed just to effectively cooperate and govern. So let's remember the context here. Jesus came to bring a kingdom. Right? So over several chapters of Matthew, we've seen the evidence of that. And the Pharisees don't like it. They don't like what they see. They don't like what Jesus stands for. And they associate it with the work of Satan. So driven by their, their position, they make these accusations against Jesus. We see that all the time. People excuse something for the folks on their side while holding others to a higher standard. There's identification with a tribe determines how you filter truth. And Jesus calls them out on it here. We have to hold fast to truth while engaging genuinely with humility and teachable hearts. But the Pharisees were not coming to Jesus with teachable hearts. And Jesus ramps up his response when he says that there's no middle ground, they, they did not gather, so they scattered. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So why does Jesus add this point? Why does he bring this up? When you try gathering something like grain, you have to work to put it together. But the natural tendency of something is to scatter. So any parent who has tried to clean their own house with small children around can attest to this. Children naturally scatter. So anyone who's not active in the work of gathering is working against Jesus here. But this imagery of gathering and scattering, some commentators say it's, it's related to herding, Uh, Making another point that uh, animals who are working against Jesus are like those animals that attack and and destroy and tear apart. Now, we need to remember that this is a response to this story of healing the demon-oppressed man. Right? The Pharisees declared the exorcism the work of Satan. Thus, Jesus is not from God, but from Satan. They attempted to say that Jesus' work was set against God's work. But now Jesus reframes the issue for them. What they have seen is God's work, and by working against it, they have set themselves against God. Jesus came to extend forgiveness, and he goes to great lengths to show that forgiveness towards others. We've seen that several times now in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus heals and then declares forgiveness of sins to those who come to him. But in this section, because their antagonism Jesus draws a line. You're either for him or against him. You either participate in the work or you're against him. 
in any moral issue, a line will be drawn. Right? And Jesus is ramping up the intensity of his response to them. It started with a defense saying the accusation doesn't make sense because the house divided will fall. And now he springs boards off this to the idea that division to how that will either be for him or against him. And their attacks are like scattering. In a way, they're taking on the role of a destroyer when they're accusing Jesus of being aligned with Satan. And their actions are more aligned, their actions are more aligned with Satan. So Jesus is really throwing it back at them. So what can we take from all this, from what we've seen so far? It can be tempting, and we see this all the time, to objectify the other person. Right? You no longer see them as a person to interact with, but as an ideal to oppose. Right? And once that happens, it's easy to think the worst things about them, about their intent. And the result is you can justify vile behavior towards them in your own mind, knowing that they're at this caricature that you've created. Right? The character gives a justification for all kinds of bad behavior. And the result will be fraction, fracturing into smaller and smaller tribes. Right? That's the history of the American fundamentalist movement in the 20th century. If you're a student of church history... Right? They, they took issue with certain things, but then they continued fighting, and then the divisions led to smaller and smaller groups defined by finer and finer divisions as they divided from one another. At the same time, we have to recognize genuine divisions. Right? There's intense differences will naturally lead to divisions. These can't be overlooked, and it's true that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Right? The church unites behind the gospel... And when someone compromises the gospel, it's a breach that cuts to the core of what the church stands for. And it will naturally drive a wedge. So we unite in local churches around the gospel and seek the purity of the church. Right? Clarity brings greater unity among us. And there's a balance between bringing clarity in, in central issues and being contentious, causing unnecessary division. And we have to strike a balance because both sides lead to error here. We need to hold fast to truth and engage with teachable hearts. So it's, it's easy when teaching through the Gospels to present the Pharisees as, as just the bad guys. Right. For you to almost take away a cartoon caricature of them. Right. But the Pharisees and Jesus were actually coming from fairly similar positions when considering the big picture of the New Testament era, Judaism. You see some references to Pharisees working with and among Jesus' disciples and honoring Jesus in the New Testament. Sometimes the, the biggest divisions in practice are those among people who are relatively close on their perspectives. And so it's those fine points of division that can cut the deepest. And sadly, that meant that they were not willing to see Jesus for who he is. Let's keep those things in balance. Holding for the truth and living in personal humility before the Lord. But the Pharisees did not do that. They made themselves scoffers. 
But their scoffing has even greater implications. And Jesus turns to that in the next few verses. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. So first, let's define blasphemy. Often we think in terms of speaking against God. And there is a more general use of the term as slander or mockery. It's a dismissiveness and a callous, uh, uh, callousness that would be consistent with a scoffer. So the word is used twice in this passage. People may speak evil against Jesus, but there's a greater sin, speaking evil against what God is doing by the work of the Spirit. Speaking evil of Jesus himself is forgivable, but to speak about what God has clearly done is blasphemy. It's a major blasphemy. So Jesus heals, he teaches, and they seize upon this situation to twist the story and undermine the kingdom of God. Right? They, they see the clear display of God's work in front of them, in power, and they're not persuaded. And instead, they double down with outlandish accusations. So briefly, I just want to point forward to the next section and see how we, this thought connects. So in verses 33 and 34, either make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we, we see this ramping up in intensity of Jesus' reply to them with each verse. Right? Jesus gives an application for us. The, the fruit is bad, therefore the tree will be bad. What comes out of their mouth reflects their hearts. Right? They had an attitude towards Jesus that was implicitly against him, and they justified their ill intent based on their view of Jesus, and they exchanged truth for the sake of a win, and what did that do to them? They exchanged what was good for what was evil. Right? Do you see the irony here? Right? They accuse Jesus of doing good by the power of Satan, a house divided, but in reality, they divide the house of God and exchange good for evil. So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy and they make themselves blasphemers in the process. What does it do to you? Right? Our frame of reference for morality is so caught up in pragmatic wins, but that's not how the Bible approaches ethics at all. In Scripture, it talks about, how, about who do you become? What does it do to you? What kind of person does it make you? Right? You can be for the right things and be an unethical person. For the Pharisees, they were for the right things, but they were against God. And may our frame of reference never be separated from the will of God. Do you see the difference? And certainly, the ends don't justify the means. But it's more than just saying that. Saying that the ends don't justify the means. It's saying what kind of person would use those means to achieve that end. Right? When you use those means, you yourself become that, that kind of person. You exchange truth for a lie. You yourself become a blasphemer. So in the end, you take evil upon yourself. And you've given up on personal character. If the tree is bad, then the fruit is bad. 
And Jesus points at the heart here. And back in verses 31 and 32, Jesus is condemning them for their attack on the miracles that God is doing. Only God can forgive sin. The Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy, and now he discusses blasphemy and forgiveness from God. The issue is one of calling the work of God evil. Their accusation of blasphemy is itself blasphemy because they're attacking the work of God. They're guilty of the exact things that they're accusing Jesus of doing. How often is that the case with scoffers? They're slanders, scoffers, blasphemers, attacking what the Holy Spirit is doing and claiming that's the work of Satan. And why do they do that? Because they see Jesus as the enemy. They can't reconcile a demonstration of the work of God with their own distrust of Jesus. And some have used this passage to assert other kinds of sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've heard it called a lack of faith, for example. Uh, If you go read commentaries, you'll see a laundry list of different things people have said as blasphemy against the Spirit. Others have defended certain controversial practices in the same way. They're using the passage as a shield to avoid accountability for their own ministry, which may be deviant in some way. But the context here is basically when someone mixes up good and evil in the context of God's work, it says that they will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. It's a mark of eternal judgment. Right? Final judgment will come against those who call God's kingdom plan evil. And people do this all the time. They're so tied to their way of thinking and their thought that when the world is set against their false construction and their minds, they double down. Right? They come up with clever attacks. It's one thing to attack the person, Jesus. That's another to attack the work of God that you claim to honor. One time I had somebody stop me here after the service with what was ultimately a cleverly uh, designed question to trap me, if you could believe it. It was a trick. It it was so much like what the Pharisees brought to Jesus. And now I claim no ability to answer questions the way Jesus did. He, He was much better at that than I would be. But the point is that you do find hardened hearts today. You do find scoffers, people who come with evil intent in their hearts. They they come with intent of getting a win rather than inquiring honestly as to whether something is true. And it's no matter to them if they don't characterize somebody's position accurately. So, this passage can be misused as well. There are those who defend disorder. And some will take this passage and use it as an excuse for all kinds of, of things. And in other words, they'll say, don't be a Pharisee, don't judge what I'm doing. Can't you see what I'm doing is the work of God? And this passage should not be used as a pass to avoid scrutiny. And calling something the work of God or calling something new wine, it doesn't make it so. And then there's those who scatter and misuse this passage. Right? Others have all the character traits of the Pharisees. And being scoffers, 
those who scatter slanders, they then call their enemies Pharisees. In other words, if you disagree with them, then in their eyes, you're a Pharisee. And I've even seen individuals place themselves in a, in a Christ role in their own minds, in a, in a conflict, kind of a persecution complex, and then call their enemies Pharisees. It, that's a lazy argument. It's ad hominem. And it completely turns the passage upside down. You can't act like the Pharisees and they call others Pharisees. It doesn't work that way. But when we evaluate a passage like this, we should not just look at these extremes, but we should also consider how these folks entered into this sin. Right? Consider that we don't get a pass here. Are there ways that we do the same things? Are you a scoffer? Do you come with a demeanor by which no argument would persuade you? Do you think so little of God and the Christian worldview as to think that those who hold to it are backward? Do you think that those who trust in Christ have no rational basis for that trust? Do you scatter? Do you enjoy destroying rather than building? Is your focus on the work of the kingdom or do you tear down and call it ministry? Are there areas where you work against Christ and his mission? Are you a slanderer? Do you take up half-baked arguments, maybe from somebody else, and then adopt them uncritically because you, you trust that source? And do you look at people as people, or do you see them as represented by their bad arguments? Do you propagate nonsensical quarrels, even when faced with reality? Are you a blasphemer? Do you take what is evil and call it good? Do you attack the character of God who created the earth and everything in it? And in your pride, do you defend your own kingdom? And maybe these things don't describe you personally. But when faced with those who do, those who are scatters or scoffers, how do you respond to them? Do you respond in equal measure? And just be aware of what it does to you. Right? Jesus pushed back, but he did so in a way that, that uh, showed and laid bare how their, their assumptions were nonsensical. And he held his ground while not resorting to the same tactics. Right? It's okay to have zeal, but you're not omniscient. And zeal should go hand in hand with humility before God. And if you have zeal and lack humility, then ask yourself what that zeal really is in your own life. And you can stand for truth without giving up on character, or even worse, exchanging light for darkness in the process. So this pastor spends a lot of time on those who attack Jesus, on his opponents, and how he responds to them. But we also need to not forget the amazing work of God that's displayed here. He came with compassion to bring healing to those who are suffering. To those captured by their own sin. And to those held captive by Satan. And he came announcing a kingdom. So let's be captivated by the amazing work of God. Let's, let's gather 
Let's be for him and not against him. And as we've seen before in Matthew's gospel, given that Jesus is the Messiah, how are you going to respond to that? Right? Like the crowds, will you ask, can this be the son of David? Like so many others in Matthew's accounts, will you respond in faith? Or will you respond as a scoffer? Such that nothing Jesus does or no evidences that you are given are going to convince you. I urge you to look anew at the amazing work of God. Consider the difference between these who, who were scoffers and, and the, the compassion that Jesus showed towards the people to bring healing. Look forward to the kingdom that he brings and that Matthew is framing for us in these accounts. And know that he comes to bring forgiveness and to restore what is broken. So that's the work of the son of David. So let's look to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work of your son. And I thank you for the work that you do through the spirit. And Lord, help us to cling closely to you. Help us to know that you are good. And help us to know when we are leaning towards scoffing in our own lives. And Lord, help us to know that you came to bring healing and restoration. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.